We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throne, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jaren Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hello, I'm Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers, the only podcast show where we take life by the tail. The episode you're about to hear was recorded live at the PodFest Expo in Orlando, Florida earlier this year, where I was fortunate enough to meet today's guest. I don't want to spoil too much, but if you like science, tales of personal triumph, and the incredible strength of friendship and the will to survive, this one's for you. I hope you enjoy. My name is William Howell, and I'm uh, tired. (laughs) Fair. But, uh... Yeah, I'm the senior creative and multimedia producer for the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition, a not-for-profit human-centered computer research facility in, located in Pensacola, Florida. I am Mark Daniel. I am ISMC's exoskeleton pilot and research associate helping on the EXO project with Quakes. Did you guys get in today or was it last night? Uh, no, we got in Thursday. This is a lot to do. Oh, yeah. And yesterday I really concentrated. I had to make my keynote so i had to kind of build it yesterday (laughs) i've been there no matter how many times you've talked about a thing there's a difference when you are on stage presenting it to people who've never heard oh yeah and how do you boil with us how do you boil 30 years of research into six minutes or or really i was trying to do it under 10 and a podcast right I think the pretty much the only way you can do is define what connects people to people in the heart, the thing that they're going to resonate with, and then how you get to that point. Yeah. So you chose probably the best entryway, which is, hey, here's how this actually helps another human being. Yeah. Well, I didn't want to just focus on robotics. I wanted to show people that, like, hey, this research, really wanted to show them a use case of research that they're not even aware that we did, mm-hmm. and it's in their pockets. The, the voice patterning and how that actually reflects whether there are aberrations and changes in the way the brain functions. Yeah, yeah. That's complex. Yeah, extremely. The thing I love doing with these is used to be when I was PR marketing and all that, you had to craft it. But now that I just interview people, you get to share them as they are. Yeah. However they're at in the moment. And if that's how you reach your Zen point, then that's fine. We uh, had, a, had a really huge shot of adrenaline, not just the normal standing up on stage. I was actually fine with that. Yeah. Right before we go up, we were testing out the system and everything's working fine. And then Mark um, made a move to where instead of letting me wheel the chair up behind him, he was like, oh, I'm just going to scoot back <laughs> and get in the chair. And when he did, um, the, the walker moved and then he fell through. Well, he was leaning forward. So I mm. instantly, oh shit, he's, he's falling. And I had to jump for him and, and then Mark's like, dude, I got it, man. What's, why are you freaking out? But it freaked me out. Mm-hmm. And so he wouldn't have fallen, but I didn't know it at the time. It totally ruined my zen. I was going to go up on stage <laughs> and be completely cool. And then I got and He up. says right before. I mean, this was like 45 minutes. Yeah. That's right before. <laughs> <laughs> you got to understand. 45 minutes is enough time to start getting back to yourself. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'd say it was like more like 37 minutes. Those six doesn't matter. <laughs> so what was going through your mind that you decided that moment, I'm going to change the script. This is going to be how we're doing it. This was the plan from the get-go. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we planned this out as soon as Billy knew that he was going to be speaking and all that stuff. Right. He's like, well, first thing, we were going to bring the EXO, and, you know, and I was mm-hmm. going to stand and do a little strutting around stage, you know, and all that stuff. And then um, we basically cannibalized the EXO <laughs> to build the next one. So at that point, it was like, can't yeah, show it. Well, yeah. And then, and then also, we, even if we didn't do that, the guys are working 12 hour days right now at, at easy days. Right. And this is the prototype. So it's not like you can just pack it. And- yeah. I mean, and well, and it's that situation. We, we, me and Billy can pack it up and bring it here and I can, you know, and we can set it up like we normally would and all that stuff. Sure. But if anything goes wrong, we have zero clue of how to do anything with it. You know <laughs> There's I mean? no tech crew to fix it. Exactly. I mean, like, I, I, like, I get up there, you know, and I like, and people see me in these systems and using these systems. And right. Usually, I'm the one doing the interviews and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I have a great team behind me. You know what I mean? Like, like, and 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 the sad thing is, like, Billy didn't have enough time to introduce them. 
You know what I mean? So like we have, you know, we have lead in uh, mechanical engineers, Jeremy Johns, and he's been with ITMC. He's been working on, he's been with ITMC longer than me, but been working on this project since the get-go. And mm-hmm. then um, we have Travis Craig. He's the same way, electrical engineer, mm-hmm. electrical. And he's the same way. He's been there longer than me. He was with me the first day that I got there. You know what I mean? Wow. And so, and then we have Peter, who Peter is trying some other ventures at the moment, but he's still participating in the EXO stuff as well. Mm-hmm. And he's been there from the get-go. Or Peter Newhouse is his project. Yeah, you know, Peter Newhouse. He's the one that, Peter's actually the one that really probably fired, like kept the project going at at the cost. You know what I mean? Like making it happen one way or the other. Did you, were you all part of team on day one or did that form over time? Yeah, well, the, Essentially, I was the addition to the team. Okay, so they so, were looking for a candidate. Yeah, everybody else was there. They'd already been working on the project, already mm-hmm. built the robot. Everything was already in play before I was even involved. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, I got a call from my physical therapy you know, institution. They called me, said that there were some scientists downtown that wanted to speak with people in my position and essentially linked us together. I came down for an interview and then checked things out for a day. And then from there, it was pretty much jump right in. What was your day one impression, both sides? You know, you're hoping, right, that you're going to be the one they picked to do this with. You're looking for the perfect match on that. What's the actual impression like when you guys meet each other as the team? From what I remember the first day that I met Mark, I don't know, man. I've, I've been working at ITC. What, what year was that? 2010? 2010. So I'd already been working in the field for 10 years. We worked with some other paralyzed, uh, other paraplegic um, patients before Mark war came in. So it was, it's really hard to describe. Um, it's not that I was used to seeing a bunch of people, but I was, I was used to meeting a ton of people, right? Mm-hmm. We work at a research facility where researchers come in and out and interns in and out and participants for studies all the time. So it was just another day, you know, in the office and really, I don't know. I don't know how to explain it day one. I, I don't even, I mean, I remember, I, you know, it's not that I remember clearly like, oh, there's this, you know, the words, yeah. there's this fellow that, wow, he just walked into the room, well, wheeled in, but walked in, I'm going to be really good friends with this guy for the rest of my life. Like I never, you know, you, you don't. Yeah, no, yeah. It, it, you're taking it all in. I'm so, so he's probably just bewildered during the headlights look like, holy shit, there's a lot of stuff to take in because it really is interesting when you walk into a robotics lab with all these different robots. Here I am. I've basically spent the last, at that point, it was a third of my life mm-hmm. in in the research and development field, now over half my life. So it's it's really hard to describe how comfortable I was in the environment and how uncomfortable he was, right? <laughs> like How normal it is to you, and then you're walking with all your, your hopes, your expectations. In all, in all honesty, I had zero expectation going in because I had zero clue of what we were even doing. This was, I had no idea. This was entirely alien to you. Yeah, essentially, the, so I talked to Peter on the phone, and Peter, in his own, you know, in his own way, basically was like, hey, we're doing this project, we're working on an exoskeleton, and we need input from someone like you. Would you like to come down and see what we're doing? Mm-hmm. And I've always been that guy that's like, somebody gives me an opportunity, I'm going to take it. Sure. sure. Uh, worst that could happen is I could say no, or <laughs> okay. they could say no, or it just not work out. But you know, you get an opportunity to go somewhere you go. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the sights. And um, so exactly what Billy said. I, I walked into the door, and the first thing that I hear is the whirring of a um, a drone somewhere off in the distance. Mm-hmm. And that was actually one of our researchers, Don Carf. He was working with a remote control based on a tablet <laughs> and how yeah. to move the tablet is sure. how the drones, you know, move. Yeah. Like, like control use, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, so I heard him working on that. There was, uh, the T-Bot robot was standing up there. We had, uh, the NV, was it NV2? Uh, M2V2. M2V2 was there. And mm-hmm. so I'll come in and there's all these things are just, we're in a small space. Like the lab at that time was no bigger than maybe two of these rooms. Yeah. And so, you know, I walk in, there's all this stuff going on. There's probably 20 people in the room. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, half of those people are doing other things and they're on their own little world. And so I, Peter comes in, introduced me to uh, Gerald, who was the mechanical engineer at that time, Gerald Norton. Um, and then he introduced me to Jeremy Gines, Travis Craig. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, I already met Peter, then I met Billy. And uh, and then the, the day kind of started from there. They demoed what they were capable of the machine doing. And then uh, Peter kind of brought me back into... I don't want to say in the office, maybe just the corner of the lab somewhere, just kind of talk to me for a minute, sure. ask me a few questions about just personal, not necessarily personal questions as much as 
he was exploring my personality, mm-hmm. I think, is what he was doing. What did he lay out for you in terms of his wishes, his his expectations, what he was looking for in someone to be a good subject? I don't even think is the right word, but someone who's a good cooperating. I think that's all that Peter was necessarily looking for was somebody that's willing to cooperate. Sure. But as far as expectations laid in front of me, there were none. So he very he did a very good job of presenting this as we have this project going on. Mm-hmm. This is what we're capable of doing, and we need input from someone like you. And that would involve you, you know, using machine and then giving mm-hmm. us feedback. It actually, and, works. And adjust exactly. Yeah. You know, is this something that we are already doing? What do we need to change? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's essentially how it laid out to me. I was just critiquing what they were doing, and that's that's really where it went from there. When did the conversation turn toward participating in something competitive? Was that later prototype? Was that early on? Oh, yeah, that was much later. Yeah. Here's the interesting thing about robotics is that nobody wants to fund robotics. I know really? it sounds interesting, but really, like, no one wants to fund robotics research. So the community in general has to dream up ways to generate public interest in which we can either a get sponsor dollars mm-hmm. for for some sort of reward for for research as a like for the Toyota Mobility Challenge there's a pot at the end of the rainbow a big prize you know that mm-hmm. that we're all supposed to be aiming for no one really cares about that it's just it's really just trying to advance the field sure um but you have to generate some sort of public interest or funding agency interest and and so competitions are a way for for the robotics community in general to a get together, uh, having an excuse that everybody get under a roof mm-hmm. for a week because that's how you collaborate and share research ideas. And, share, oh, yeah, yeah. and, and, and really uh, spur spur development in the field. So competitions are. It's funny how they're all they're all basically um, packaged as sporting events, but when you get inside the garage, usually every every single event we've ever been to is you're housed together mm-hmm. and you're all rooting for each other. You know what I mean? Nobody wants anyone's robot to fail. It's funny. It reminds me of the creative community, particularly when you get into those academic or more workshop intense environments where everyone has their expertise, their knowledge, their practice, but you're there to see how you can give others that too. Mm-hmm. As a shining example right. is of, of just how non-competitive this is, is that one of our quote unquote competitors in the, in the games Right, uh, was the, the research team out of Cleveland for the VA hospital. And they have, uh, they, they were competing with FES, functional electrical stimulation implants into, you know, into patients where they were, they're basically allowing paraplegics to power bicycles with their own legs. And that's mm-hmm. now the, the research and, and development of that is basically, you know, it's really intense and it's a serious surgery. Mark underwent the surgery. So we go, we go to this competition. They're not recruiting him to be one of their athletes, mm-hmm. but he's obviously strong enough to do some amazing things with his body and, mm-hmm. you know, to help us with our research. He's now uh, a member of their, basically, he's a subject for their research now. They've implanted his, the, the device into his, you know, in his ribcage, I'll let him talk about that, but electrodes into his muscles, and that's what we demonstrated today. So what we demonstrated today on the stage mm-hmm. had nothing to do with IHMC's research. True. It had everything to do with, with the VA's work, and, you know, mm-hmm. but all of Mark's work with IHMC led to that point. Mm-hmm. Where he could yeah. participate in that and, and contribute too. Yeah, yeah, those competitions, you know, I've only been to the Cybathlon, you know, first-hand experience. True. And in just that, you know, first-time, first-hand experience that I've had, whenever we walked into the arena, everybody's wearing team shirts. Mm-hmm. There were no groups of single shirts. So everybody was talking with everyone across, you know, across competitions, across, you know, our competitors were sitting at down at tables and talking with each other about what they're doing. It was just as exciting to see what other groups of athletes could accomplish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I was watching all of the other exoskeletons just to see how they operate sure. so that maybe I can, you know, maybe if I seen something that I liked, I could, you know, talk to my guys about it and be like, hey, this was this was a good idea through doing that and meeting all the people from the VA was just one step to another. No, this was the first sabathalon at Zurich, Switzerland, right? Yes, 2016 and Zurich, Switzerland. You won. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you did yeah. pretty well. I always get nervous about these things, you know, because 
it's, it's always put to me as an, I won the silver medal. Sure. And granted, you know, I was in the exoskeleton. I did the obstacle course. Right. I didn't build the exoskeleton. I didn't program it. I didn't design it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, all these things, you know, we won silver medal there as a team in maybe that 10 minutes or 20 minutes. I did two runs in the, uh, in the event. I did two, uh, two, I did the obstacle course twice in those 20 minutes that it was necessarily all on me. There were years before that where it was all on them. But that was just your part of the whole team. That was my, that's my part of the team contribution. And then moments like this where I get to spread the technology and show people what we're accomplishing mm-hmm. through more than just talk. I can demonstrate what we're doing and they can see that it's not an able person like Billy or, you know, you know, doing it. It's sure. somebody that doesn't have a choice. They have to rely on this to do it. And so I'm able to bring that out to the forefront and bring hope to people. Let's paint a picture for the audience. So is it cybertronic, cybernetic? What's the it's there for a cyber? Okay. Yeah. All right. So uh, the the cybathlon in general. Yeah. Um, an overview of that is think of it in general terms as bionic Olympics. This is where technology like the exoskeleton gives me the ability to do things that I otherwise wouldn't do. And so what it is is man and machine working together to complete what man can necessarily do on their own, but we as me as a man cannot, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So that, that's the whole thing is bionic Olympics. It's people, humans using technology to do things that they otherwise could not. What did the course you competed on entail? Um, so my course, the uh, exoskeleton race, there were uh, six obstacles and uh, they were laid out, you know, clearly had defined lines and everything. So sure. at the start of the race there, there's videos all over online about it. But so this, the start of the race is, you know, me on my feet at the start line. Mm-hmm. Um, I walked to a nice kind of comfy sofa chair, you know, mm-hmm. that you have to sit low and you kind of sink into. Mm-hmm. So I uh, sit down into that seat, stand up. And from there, the next obstacle was a slalom course. So you have four posts that you had to walk around, mm-hmm. you know, think like driving slaloms, ski slalom, same mm-hmm. thing. Um, and then the next one was what we call the, it was ramping doors. And so ramping doors was a 15 degree incline to the top of the level. You walk across the level, open a door, Go through the door, shut the door behind you, and walk down a t- walk down a twenty degree decline. And so then you're back on flat ground. You go to the next obstacle, mm-hmm. which is uh, stepping stones. I can't remember the exact number. I want to say there was twelve of them. And essentially, that's just like what it sounds like. If you had a, a lily pad laid across the pond and you had you to jump from one to okay, the other, yeah. so that's essentially what it was. Was they were laid out for each foot as I go, but they were different link steps. They were different. They you know some of them were ten or so inches to the right or ten or so inches to the left. So the stepping stones were laid out where you couldn't just walk straight through it and hit every line. Trajectory, there's angling, there's balance. Yeah. And I think people forget how much goes into staying on your feet and just staying balanced on the foot. Yep. And then, then we go from the uh, stepping stones. Um, and this is one that we actually, we decided not to do sure. just for the risk involved. But it was, uh, we called it the wedges. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the proper term would be tilted path. So mm-hmm. think of like you're walking down a sidewalk and it's tilted toward the road five or ten degrees. And that angle that you're walking on, yep. you know, to the right or to the left. And that's essentially what the obstacle was, was the ability to walk in that uneven environment. What part did you enjoy the most of being on the course and what part felt the most challenging to you? Um, well, that that honestly would be the last obstacle, which is the uh, the stairs. Yeah. So, because, you know, I'm in a wheelchair. <laughs> Stair, climbing stairs for me is not a great option. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's absolutely doable if you really put some effort in, but it's not worth the definitely. effort unless you have to do it. And so the, the most challenging obstacle really was the stairs for more than just the reasons, oh, I can't do it in my wheelchair. But that was the most physically demanding obstacle for me, upper body wise. Mm-hmm. It was the most mentally you know, challenging obstacle just because I'm really focused on how much weight I'm putting on each leg as it's stepping up each, you know, carrying my weight up each step. Mm-hmm. The really crazy part about that whole obstacle there, the last race, and one of the reasons why I see it as like this was the biggest challenge ever was because I got on up the stairs and I was doing my rotation because I had to go down backwards because it was for safety reasons. Right. Essentially, we didn't trust it enough. We wanted to go backwards. Mm-hmm. So uh, what happened in the middle of me turning around was the uh, the crutches that I use are forearm crutches. So, they you know, they wrap around your forearm, but there's a, whole, a slit in that where you can easily take them on and off. Mm-hmm. So I'm doing my rotation and all this and I can feel that cuff sliding down <laughs> and I feel it slip off of my arm. Well, that was my control crutch. Mm. So that's everything that I need to do is in that crutch. I have to operate that to make it down the stairs and finish this race. Mm-hmm. And in, I mean, what felt like years to me, you know, in that time frame <laughs> was really a half a second that this thing slipped off my arm mid motion 
And luckily, we decided to go with an Ethernet connection for the user interface. Smart. And I caught the Ethernet cable and kind of <laughs> like, and I didn't just snatch it back up because I like all in all this was processing so fast. But I felt it reflex. I felt it falling and I knew that it slipped off. I reached down, caught the cord and even gave it that little bit of bungee so that I didn't just snatch it. Mm -hmm. And then as it, when it leveled out, I threw it up and just grabbed the crutch and brought it back to me. (laughs) And then from that point, it was like crept back on the ground and on back in, you know, I'm fighting to get all back oriented and everything. (laughs) And then, uh, then I go down the stairs and I was really crazy through all of this, uh, me and the, the team that won first, they were, we were neck and neck all through the stairs. We hit the bottom of the stairs at the same time, mm-hmm. and he crossed the finish line before me because I still had to turn around. Oh, you know what I mean? So close. Yeah, but I mean, but it wasn't it, at that point. We already knew that we were going to play second, right? Because the obstacles were worth a certain amount of points per obstacle. You're ready for all those. Yep. Yeah. and they did. They they skipped the stepping stones and did the wedges. We did the stepping stones, skipped the wedges. So nice. that reverse, it was interesting in retrospect. If you want to get into the technicalities of it. More teams completed the wedges. We were the, I think we were the only team that actually skipped that just because we were concerned of safety. Mark could have done it. We skipped it just because, you know, we didn't want to hurt him. Uh, so we, but we were the only team that even attempted the stepping stones and we won or we, we got, we, we, we completed yeah. them. And if anything, that was our most like fascinating to watch obstacle yeah. because no one else could do it. And so we, really? yeah. And so, so what was the hang up in terms of the mechanics or the capability there? Like, what, uh, well, what was in? Well, so they were they were uneven unevenly placed. Sure. So you had to um, you really had to make different length steps, right? You had to you had to it wasn't just a brute force thing. Uh, all most of the other devices, in fact, all of them uh, had had a fixed set pattern. So they had a set range, a set direction, set angle. Yeah. Um, and so we, on the other hand, we manipulated through software. Yeah. And what we actually uh, what we ended up doing was for so each obstacle had its own. This is the obstacle that you're doing mm-hmm. because we had all the specs and everything beforehand. We knew what sure, to happen. Design to it. Yeah, so we could design software-wise to make the step lengths, heights, all that stuff correct for stairs or mm-hmm. whatever we were doing. So that's actually what we did when we got when I got to stepping stones. I, we had already planned this out. We'd already practiced it in the lab to where I had to position myself at a certain point before at the, at the starting line of that mm-hmm. obstacle, and the first step mattered the most at that point. If I knew that I got my foot on the right perfect place in that first step. The rest of them were programmed in lengthwise. So I didn't have to stop in long step, medium step, short step, you know, those mm-hmm. kind of things. I essentially, I could just walk. And all I had to focus on at that point was making sure directionally that my foot was going to land in the right spot. So I had to turn left, turn right by a few degrees every step to make sure that. And, uh, in the field of robotics, I mean, that's expected because what I hoped that we showed today was that everything, at least in the research fields that we were in, Everything is built on on top of what came before it, right? Mm-hmm. So, so for one thing is okay. You program in the steps and you do it. The next is okay. The next version, like right now, we're adding visual sensors to the device, um, real sense to begin to three D scan the the environment in front of you. Um, so at some point down the road, through software and operator interface, at some point the device will begin to make decisions on step lengths and. Otherwise, it will read your visual input and then send that as a communication down to the software to adapt accordingly. Yes, it will automate the, mm-hmm. these things. Yeah, that's and, and that's and hopefully, you know, at some point down the road, that's what happens, right? So, so that we were just taking the first step. The first step is okay. Well, we have to really do the stepping stones. Right? Can we so, do adaptable? Yeah. Can we do? Can yeah. we do different step lengths? Yeah. And we demonstrated that not only is it feasible, it was absolutely successful. Yeah, it was that was the one of our best completion as far as obstacles. That was the one where perfection mattered, but for perfection was there. I'm yeah. curious, was there any point during this entire course where the exosuit, the the surgery, any of that didn't feel like it was just part of you? Did you just feel like you in the moment in that entire time? The after all the time that I've spent working with the exoskeleton and you know, and and just the way that I grew up, I mean, I grew up dirt bikes, four wheelers, sure. you know, farm equipment. You it's know. just another tool. Yeah, it was just another tool, man. And so it was me, like, yeah. you know, whether, you know what I mean? It was my muscles doing the work or not. Mm-hmm. I'm still in control here. You know what I mean? Like I'm still taking, making the steps happen. I'm, you know, I'm commanding the steps, let's put it that way. And everything. So just like that, it, it was another tool. It was, it was no more awkward than me using my wheelchair now. When you arrived in Zurich, was that your first time being in a foreign country, being in Switzerland? <laughs> 
Um, up until we went to Zurich um, at 26 years old, I've never really gone further than four or five hours from my house on my own. You know what I mean? So having the opportunity then to explore the city and ambulate around it was... Oh, man, the, the, the experience. That's kind of the, the, the wildest part of you know me even being in these situations. Mm-hmm. At 18 years old, I, I didn't, have, didn't have and didn't want anything to do with technology. I come from a blue collar background where, you know, men go out and they go to work. You know I mean? We, we don't go to, computer, you know, and I'm not downing anybody, no, but that's just, that was yeah, that was, that was the way I was raised. You know, my dad worked 80 hours a week. What does he do? Uh, he's a plumber. He actually mm-hmm. works for the school board where I live at and he runs his own side business or he ran his own side business. Now he actually uh, subcontracts to another person because he doesn't like dealing with people. Did he expect you or your siblings to take that up or kind of follow your own? Um, I'm the only, uh, I'm the, I'm the youngest and the only boy. Oh. Well, I won't say I'm the youngest. I have a, I have a little uh, little sister as well, but um, she's probably a lot more grown up than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Usually, the way it is. <laughs> but um, but uh, but I am the only. I was the only boy, and uh, I think my dad did expect that to a degree. But my dad's never been the type that you know you have to do what I do. Mm-hmm. He's, he know he 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 set the example of what is expected from you, and, and in the sense of I expect you to go to work. What you do for work, I don't care. I expect you to commit. I ex- I expect you to take care of yourself and learn to take care of yourself, and then learn to take care of a family. That's what my dad expected from me. And so, being in the wheelchair, you know, and him not—he didn't really understand like how do I deal with my son now because it's different. You know, what I mean, like, and and it took us a little while to really get past that gap of like how do we relate. You know, where was that relationship at when you entered into this sabbatical when you decided to? Uh, as a team relationship with when had you kind of reconciled that already or was he still struggling with what your life would be or could be in, in all honesty my, my dad he completely accepts you know like what i am and, and where i'm going and the things that we're doing and sure. all that stuff you know he's never at any time been discouraging in any way to do with me being paralyzed or anything like that in all honesty he's been just as stern and open with me as he's always <laughs> been in the sense of this is what i expect from you you're going to go out and win the gold, of course. Yeah. And, well, I mean, and, and he's not not even competitive like really? that. He was inc- he wanted me to go and have a good time and make sure that we did what we came to do, and that that was really the attitude of the whole competition across the board. But 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 with my my father, man, we're not the best of friends. We're not like the biggest buddies where we're going to hang out every day. Sure. But but he's always been behind everything that I'm doing and and telling me to hey, I don't understand what's going on here. This is way above my pay grade, but keep doing it. You're doing awesome. Because he saw the results. Yeah. And I think the results really to him doesn't matter. Doesn't didn't matter any more than my own happiness. When you stepped into the church, what were you thinking? What drew you to that spot? Like what were you what was just the moment the thing going through your head as you walked in? Well, what drew us to the spot was the stairs. So we saw that so it's two things. Sure. The first we saw the angle. Yeah. We saw the there's an angle up, right? Like, yeah, there's a ramp leading ramp up leading up. And we're like, hey, let's see if we can do that. If given enough time, I could have shown the you know all of the footage from those moments. Um, but but we figured out that you know going up an angle, just the regular angle, walking straight up was really hard for him. This is not something that it was just uh, natural uh, natural movements. The way that the way that Mark has to work, walk in the exoskeleton is that he's kind of ping ponging himself back and forth, keeping balance. If you if you ever watch the, if you go and watch the videos of him, he's doing this really interesting dance between the crutches where he's like he hits two on one side one and then flip-flop two on one side two on the other and and it's it's just dance and he's always bouncing back and forth and and propelling himself either way and that's how he goes like cross-country skiing almost yeah Yeah. and when he started going up the the hill uh, of that little ramp and what was it 10 degrees 10 degrees yeah and just it was the first time when we were out in public that oh Tyson, the engineer, had to jump up and, and catch him a few times because it was just, it's an unnatural thing. It, you know, you'd have to really push. It was dangerous, actually. Um, so we wanted to see in the real world, these scenarios, what would happen. You know, the stairs were at the top of the ramp. So he goes up the stairs. Oh, there's a door. And he opens the door and then we go inside and, oh, shit, we're in the church. <laughs> yeah. And then he, he grabs that and puts it off. Yeah, I took my hat off. <laughs> like, like, uh, and whoa, and he just keeps walking, and we're like, uh, okay. And then we go in, and it was so surreal and so beautiful. I'm sure. 
Yeah, that's that's the only word that I could have used, you know, used to describe the feeling walking in was just like me not even being like super religious, you know, taking my hat off was just a respect thing, you know right. what I mean? Like their place of worship, yeah, respect. Well, you, and so like you know, walking in the church, taking my hat off, and and nobody was there. There wasn't a soul in the church. There was no. Nobody there. The doors were wide open, and nobody was there. You know, which is normal, <laughs> I guess, in a sense. But that feeling of walking in, and and you know, me not even being religious, it was just like this is this is where you're meant to be. This is what you're meant to do. You know, like it really felt like that in those moments, especially, you know, not, that's not the only one, but, you know, but definitely walking into that church and like this moment happening the way that it did, like mm-hmm. just after all that struggle and, and then all this. And then it's like, you know, that, that it's, it's, it kind of brings back the idea of me as like that moment of redemption, mm-hmm. you know, for me being paralyzed wasn't necessarily a huge hit anywhere other than, well, what do I have to contribute now? You know, I mean, that was the biggest thing that really stunned me in the, in the whole beginning phases of, you know, being paralyzed and figuring all this new stuff out and you know, on top of, well, who am I now? Because before I was, you know, a construction worker, I was an industrial person. You were 17, 18. Yeah, I was 18. Do you mind just for the audience talking a little bit about what happened? I tell this story all the time, so it, it's going to be kind of quick and I'm going to run over a few things. That's fun. Really fast. So the really the, the journey to becoming paralyzed, you know, is 18 years long. <laughs> so but but to shorten it down you know basically um 18 years of hardcore man dirt bikes boilers outdoors construction mm-hmm. work all that stuff and about 15 i lost uh, i met and lost i um, i got injured and lost uh, the ability to ride my dirt bike basically my parents were like we're not gonna let you kill yourself on this thing if you if you want your own you can buy one when you're old enough mm-hmm. and so we're getting this they're taking this away from you i almost killed myself a few times and um <laughs> and so they took that away and in, in losing that i lost that adrenaline rush, that place that I went for my place, you know, my so place. You were looking somewhere else. I looked for that, and in looking for that, I found drugs. <laughs> and in drugs, I found uh, cocaine, and, and in cocaine, I found that adrenaline that I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And and then that led, you know, to a downward spiral, spiral of course, and uh, which really brought me to a, a you know another kind of peak, which was um, turning seventeen. I finished my uh, finished high school a year early because I knew I was in a bad place and I knew I wasn't going to complete a senior year in high school. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually got um, went to went to my few last senior classes and graduated adult high school. And then my parents basically sat me down and were like, "Look, we we know you got a problem, and you know you have a problem. Mm-hmm. So what are you going to do about it? Here's an opportunity. This place called Job Corps will send you anywhere in the country to learn a trade." And you can, they will send you back with, you know, a little bit of money and a little bit of tools and you can get started on your way that way. And it'll give you an opportunity to get away from what you're doing now. Mm. And so, um, knowing all the things that I knew about myself at the time and, and accepting the fact that I was a drug addict, I, you know, I took the opportunity, went to Job Corps. Uh, it's supposed to be a two year program. And, and within the first month, I, you know, I got through the withdrawals and, you know, and all that kind of stuff and mm. kind of got my head level out and all that. And over the next eight months, I uh, completed all of the written assignments and all the testing, test taking and all that stuff uh, paper wise in about three months. Um, and then within the next month, I finished all of the like uh, what they call tasks, which are, you know, taking parts, taking things apart, putting them back together. Correct. Um, yeah. Yeah, and identifying parts and identifying this and that mm-hmm. you know, in visual form and all that. So I finished all that. And then um, so eventually, essentially, I finished the program. And they looked at me and they're like, we've never had anybody do it this quick. Uh, we, we can't give you this. You haven't been here long enough for us to give you this. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, well, how long do I need to be here? And they're like, a minimum of nine months. And I was like, okay, well, what are we going to do for the next three months? And they're like, well, well, you can do another skill. And I was like, nah, I'm not really interested in anything else. Um, what else, you know, what else is there? They have partnerships with businesses across the community where they send you out into basically on the job training. And you start out as on the job training at the lowest level. Like the premise. Oh, yeah. yeah. You, you are sweeping floors. And, and my job is that I actually got a job with a, um, I got the apprenticeship with a man that was probably in his sixties whenever I got there. And he was very much like my grandfather, very cool, calm and collected, non-emotional kind of person, mm-hmm. you know, just, uh, stoic. He basically, this is what I expect from you. And what he expected was essentially you're going to degrease all these dirty diesel <laughs> engines and spray them down and clean them out. Everything I don't want to do. Yeah. Yep. Tear them apart and make sure that you better have all the bolts in the right spot. That's what you turn to for, bro. Yeah. yeah. So, that, you know, I went through that program, finished it in nine months. And then um, I was, I turned 18 May 22nd. I was back home June 1st. By the 1st of July, I started working seven days a week. Um, as soon as I got back, I started working uh, five to six days a week doing sure. industrial supply, driving a truck, essentially. And in doing that, I met the, the companies and the supervisors that I wanted to work for. 
Mm-hmm. And that brought me into the uh, welding and fabrication field. And once I got there, I knew I was home, you know, and essentially for the next, what, July, August, September, October, I basically worked all through those days, all through those months, seven days a week, uh, 80 hours, up to 80, 90 hours a week. But you committed. Yeah, I was fully in. I loved it. Oh, my gosh, man. I, I'd be up, I'd be up every day before my alarm went off on my feet. And as the alarm was going off, I was, <laughs> you know what I mean? And on my feet and, and I would just throw my clothes on, have the truck gone. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, work 10, 12, whatever hours a day. And then come, home, you know, I, and I wasn't even, and I was being stupid. I essentially, um, I was working all those hours and I would stop somewhere at my friend's house on the way home and I hang out for half the night, you know, mm-hmm. and then go home and sleep for four hours. And so essentially I did this for five months, four or five months and fell asleep on the way home about two miles away from the house one night. Yep. Flipped the truck. Uh, and this is per police report because I don't remember any of it, but essentially I fell asleep, kind of straddled the side of the road for a minute. I hit some mailboxes. When I hit the mailboxes, things went really crazy, and I snatched the wheel. I was in an SUV, flipped the SUV, and I flipped seven times rolling down a hill. And then I got ejected onto the shoulder of the road, and the truck flipped off into basically like about 15 feet lower into the shoulder. You're fortunate you're alive. Yeah. Oh, yeah, man. And and that's something that that I'll never get away from. Those are experiences that you will never forget is is literally like I I coded. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I had a collapsed lung. Uh, bruised internal organs, probably about six ribs broken on the right side. And then a the T10 vertebrae was a um, burst fracture. So it was like three big pieces. At what point during that recovery process did they tell you you were paralyzed? Um, they're pretty quick to tell you when, when you become awake, yeah. you know? So, so, um, it happened uh, on a Friday. Uh, I woke up. I don't remember anything for about three days. Sure. And what, from what everybody tells me, I mean, they told me within, you know, 12 hours of being there, like, Hey, this is the problem that you have. But I was so out of it. That I'm no, sure the sure. adrenaline, I'm sure everything else <laughs> yeah. factored into memory on that. But, um, I don't necessarily remember anything for about a week and, you know, maybe three to four days a week. The painkillers, ketamine and the other stuff they put you in, you can just have uh, your memory. Well, they, they, they gave me morphine up until the point, <laughs> yep. well, up until the point where they realized that morphine turns this man wild. And so like, really? oh yeah, dude. Okay. First thing, <laughs> the first thing that I remember in the that hospital, surprise me <laughs> at all. so the first thing I remember in the hospital, the absolute first thing that I woke up to, as far as like full on, I know everything that happened in this moment. I got breathing tube in. Sure. I'm chained to the bed because mm-hmm. I'm already trying to pull the breathing tube out. Mm-hmm. And they are like, I'm already fighting everything, trying to just mad as all get out. And, um, I remember this guy came in. He was very nice at the beginning and he came in and he's like, Hey, my name's, uh, Hey, my name is Danny. Um, I'm going to be measuring you for, uh, for basically what we call turtle shell. Sure. And turtle shell think, uh, I have my broke, my back is broke. They put me through surgery, put rods in and and the turtle shell essentially caps your whole midsection and keeps you perfectly straight and all that stuff where you can heal without snatching anything apart. He's like, I'm going to measure you for this thing. Watch out. Uh, and you know, just let you know. And then my dad is standing on the right side of the bed. Danny's on the left. And my dad tells him, Hey, watch out. He's got a bunch of broken ribs on that side. Just, you know, just steer clear. Sure. But he's got to measure these things. He mm-hmm. has to know, you know what I mean? So, and, and this is all so fast. He, he reaches over you know, his shoulders, da, 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 boop, puts a thumb in my rib. And I know he didn't mean to do it. He had to get an accurate measurement. Right. But in that moment, my right hand goes up and <laughs> the chain stops my hand and and I've never been one to just like oh I'm just going to go crazy and you know that so but like that happened and like I remember I'm looking at him and my arm came up and when it stopped because of the chain I looked back at my arm like what and then so like I seen what was going on I put my hand back down and then I'm just looking at him like you know I can't talk or anything I still have to breathe into it he looks down at me and he's like well nobody asked you to come in here like this and, you know, and at that moment, that was not the right, that was just pushed me further over the edge, but he was right. You know, he was correct in that. But in that moment, he had his hands resting on the side of the bed. And and in that moment, I realized that, hey, my arm came up so far, I can reach. And as the moment that I realized that I could reach his hand, yeah, I reached over and I grabbed him by the thumb. And everywhere that that chain would let me go with his thumb, I was taking it there and every as fast as I could. And I was just wrenching on so his you thumb. You developed a reputation pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> then and then once they got the breathing tube out, that's when I told them, like, hey, are y'all giving me morphine? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah, because we already learned this before. Fine, yeah. uh, well, I learned this the last the time before that when I was in the hospital where I went through my spleen and stuff. Mm-hmm. They gave me morphine and I was just crazy, man. Like, I, I just turned mean belligerent, mean, and you can't, you know, like, I just won't slow down. Then you're like, they put my belly for three days for vertigo. Okay. I just didn't think. 
<laughs> Called the doctor says, yeah, no, no volume for you. <laughs> yep. And so uh, actually after being paralyzed and all this stuff within um, a couple months of being like having to go to physical therapy and stuff, sure. I actually swung by the records department mm-hmm. and told them to put that in my records yes. to never give me morphine. And, and I told them, and they were like, what are you allergic? And I'm like, no, I'm belligerent. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she just started laughing. She's like, yeah, we get a bunch of people like that to come in here and tell us not to do that. <laughs> Cause I don't like being that way, I don't, you know, and that was really the, that was really probably the best thing that I, the best attitude I could have at the beginning was I don't want to be mad. I don't like being mad. I just want to be out of this and back to, I want to be normal. I yeah. want to be me. And as far as like, you know, you know, we're talking about relationships and like relationship, relationship with my father and how, you know, he's always just wanted me to be happy and be able to take care of myself, you know, those kind of things, you know, really the, the part that, it kind of changed a lot of how my outlook was and my attitude, at least my private attitude, which really changed that. Because outwardly, I've always, I've always been like, you know, I'm never going to tell nobody that I'm crying or upset or mad. You know, like, sure. Mainly because, like, you know, and some people I will, but I'm not going to put that on every person that I run into. I'm not going to be like that. So my mom comes in one day and I, like I'm having one of those mornings and I'm just in a piss poor mood and you know, I'm just not happy or whatever. And uh, she comes in and she stands behind my wheelchair. And she gives me that, I'm about to talk to you look. <laughs> and I'm like, uh-oh. So I'm like, I'm just kind of looking at her. She's looking at me. She's, she's kind of, you know, takes a deep breath. And she says, Mark, I love you to death. She's like, I understand that what you're going through is hard. And that there's a lot of things that you're going to have to figure out. And she's like, and I will help you figure all of these things out. And I will help you. I will carry you. I will do anything that I can to help you. Mm-hmm. She's like, but I'm going to die decades before you do. And you better figure it out or you're going to be all alone in that bed by the time I die. And in that moment, she just stopped and pushed the chair at me and then walked out of the room and shut the door. Mm. And from that moment on, I realized she's right. If I don't get up and figure this out now and not 10 years from now, not, you know, when I'm 50, Mm -hmm. if I don't figure it out today, at least the good attitude, a step in the right direction, then I'm going to be miserable for the rest of my life. We talked before about your impressions when you first met Mark. When did you realize that this would be someone you'd spend so many years of your life working with? Well, we've got a lab full of engineers. I am not an engineer. Sure. Right. So my father was a psychologist. I was raised in, raised with like empathy being the number one thing he cared that I had, right? As mm-hmm. opposed to some fathers care that their kids are good in the football. My father cared that I cared about other people. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Pretty much the entire time, I was always the psychologist of the group, right? Like paying attention to how everybody was feeling, not just Mark, mm-hmm. but other engineers, because at some point, this stuff takes an emotional toll on everyone and um, they don't realize it, right? So, so no, because they're so invested in the work and the actions. And the, yeah. yeah. And, and so, so, you know, I'm, I was always the guy that likes, hey, Mark, are you thirsty? You okay? Hey Pete, you all right? You know, Travis, you know, what's going on? You know, and like sticking in and mm-hmm. right at the beginning of that, that's when Mark and I hit it off because he's like that too, in an odd way. He really cares about the people around him and, and you know, he's there to please us and you know, to do what we need to do. He's obviously there and he's gonna experience walking and you know, all this stuff, but he didn't care what was you know, what we subjected him to. He was there, I'm here to help you guys and Oddly as it sounds, he was more empathetic than the engineers that are working on these things. You know? <laughs> and and I think we really hit it off within the first minute or two. So did I know that I would know him for the rest of my life? I don't know. I just felt real comfortable with him. And we we kicked off. And it was mutual, man. He you know, it works that way, you know, like with, with someone like Billy, mm-hmm. I can really be that empathetic and open person. You know what I mean? And, and I find I find myself in this situation all the time because I speak with people so much and sure. I speak with so many different people. Somebody like Billy is somebody that I can talk to about feelings. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And, and There's things no that, judgment behind it. Well, and not even the judgment behind it, but Billy understands these things. Mm. You know, a lot of people don't understand their own feelings. You know, that's true. And they don't know how to handle their own emotions, so they mm-hmm. just don't handle them at all. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and that's one thing. But like meeting Billy and we sat down for that first video deal that we, you know, the first interview that come out with that video and that I'm so ashamed of now. Me Just, man, I, like now you hear me speak now and I True. enunciate. Yeah. I did not enunciate at all that day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we pulled Mark out of the woods. Like basically. Yeah, like, really, man. I, I, like, I, I don't sound like I'm from the woods. 
I am from the woods. <laughs> my family, my mother's side at least, is from New England. And about halfway through a conversation last night, I slipped into their accent. Uh-huh. And I just heard it roll right in and go, yeah, there's no way this is. Yep. <laughs> so I get it. Yeah. And then, you know, and then like I talk with Peter, you know, like the engineers. True. And, and luckily I'm able to turn that empathetic side off where I'm not talking to them about feelings, mm-hmm. you know, as much as I'm talking to them about the actual process and what we're doing. And I can become very mechanical with them. You're giving them the feedback. Okay. Does this work? Is that uncomfortable? Does this actually get to where we need to be? Yeah. And I try to judge things, you know, be, and Billy makes a point to tell me this all the time that I'm like a superhuman in a wheelchair mm-hmm. and I don't necessarily look at myself like that. This is all just, this is just the way I am and this is how I do things. But um, I, I try to make a judgment when I'm in the exoskeleton of not necessarily anything more or less of how hard is this for me? Right. You know what I mean? If this is hard for me mm-hmm. and, and Billy and all these people come up to me and they tell me about all the badassery that I am or do or, you know, or whatever, then I take that into consideration and say, if this is difficult for me, this is probably impossible for others. And so then even though I can still do it and it's not an issue for me, sure. I'll bring that problem back to the engineers and say, like, look, like I can do this because whatever reason I'm figuring it out. Mm-hmm. But we need to adjust this because it's not easy and it's not going to be something. It used to be even more capable by the time that technology reaches the point of being a public right. utility. That, that's my big payback for all this. Like, like Billy said, like, honestly, in all honesty, I'm not doing any of this for me. Sure. You know, like I enjoy a lot of it, you know, mm-hmm. definitely. But the, the whole reason goal for all of this behind everything for me is that 18 year old kid that I was that didn't have a clue and didn't know what was coming doesn't know how to understand all this and maybe doesn't have the support system that I did maybe they didn't you know maybe they didn't learn anything in the 18 years prior that would help them in the future and if I can save them from having to revamp their entire life and how they look at the world and give them help to give them a piece of technology that can put them back on their feet you mm-hmm. know what I mean immediately then that's the that's my payoff. That's where I won. It's years of their life they have that. That's years of their life that that, that I gave up. Like, mm-hmm. and I, this is not a mortar situation. I'm not complaining at all. You know what I mean? Like, but I gave up financial stability, all kinds of things to experience what I've done over the past twelve years, mm-hmm. and I've done it on purpose. I sacrificed those twelve years, and in really going on thirteen now, that I've straight just thrown in the fire as far as what normal normally people would say you know you need a career path you need a, you need a house <laughs> this is the way you're you need a family to you know all this i threw all of that in the fire and and started looking at this like what do i need to experience to be better at what i'm doing hmm. and a lot of that was going out into the world into the places where people say you can't take your wheelchair and finding out that hey i can take my wheelchair here and i will and I'm going to figure out how to do it. And then I'm going to show others how to do it because I don't want them to be stuck in the box that I was stuck in. What is it like now when you guys go on the stage? What is that? What's the high for you now for both of you? Well, for me, it was just um, getting over the adrenaline rush of Mark almost falling over. He's not. I'm going to hear about this totally throughout my song composed about Going on stage is interesting in communicating. I, I think that both Mark and I are adept at sitting and talking at length about things. Uh, when you're on stage, the, there's this pressure to shoehorn in a bunch of stuff into a time frame that isn't necessarily conducive to conveying a lot of information. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the, the difference between a TED talk and uh, a Joe Rogan interview. Sure. Right? Like, Joe Rogan's four hours. You can learn a whole lot from somebody. You're about everything, yeah. Yeah. And the TED Talk interview, it's seven to ten minutes. You know, talk about your whole life. Go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's uh, a flash kernel. I dropped it now. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So dealing with that and trying to shoehorn everything in. And, and then, I don't know, th- this was an interesting venue because it was all about podcasting as opposed to when you come to IHMC and, you know, we have tours and whatnot that, we can really go in depth and, and really talk about the history of everything. But the problem, the problem with speaking at, a, at something like this, PodFest, we're getting 15 minutes sure. with the demo, like the demo was part, you know, so we're really given 10 minutes to not only talk about our podcast, but then contextualize why what they're about to see is important mm-hmm. and really to understand that contextualize that that what they're about to see is the beginning of something that's going to one day be just a normal, that they're going to consider normal. Oh, yeah, at some point, 
At some point, people are going to be like, you mean people used to have to use chairs with if you, wheels? If you look at the sci-fi yeah. pop culture that the young adults and kids are watching now, the whole idea of an exosuit being part of future life is just an assumption. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Iron Man, you yeah. know, it's, and it's a valid assumption. Yeah. I mean, where I sit today is light years beyond where I sat that first day at HMC. Yeah. You know what I mean? In another 10 years, I mean, God, like I look forward to see where we're at and I hope where we, I hope we, I hope we work ourselves out of a job. You want the personal suit with the assistant built into it, right? Yeah, dude, for sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He's getting Jarvis. Okay. Yeah. 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 Like I, I want Get the, the voice actor. Yeah, I want yeah. I want the full suit. Yeah, everything, man. Why not? Nothing else can voice the videos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know what? That's brilliant. I'm gonna contact him because he is an amazing actor. Okay, so quick story, we were part of the DARPA Robotics Challenge, right? Sure. And one of the things you you assume responsibility as one of the teams is that you have to update the field and the public of your of your progress. And so we had to do these quarterly mm-hmm. you know releases and, and we had to do one right before the final competition. Jerry, the, our lead walking roboticist, at the beginning of the Dark Robotics Challenge, he said, hey, why don't you make a documentary about this? I said, sure. I've never made a documentary. I have no idea what I'm doing. So I filmed for four years, and yep. I've got enough footage to make a whole lot of, you know, sure, you know, an amazing documentary. And same thing with the Exo stuff. Mm-hmm. Said, Someday the world will see the full story. So Jerry said instead of just saying, hey, this is the state of our robot and this is why don't we um why don't we show a preview of the documentary? And keep in mind, he's an engineer, so he thinks, oh, you can just edit a documentary <laughs> together. Yeah, it's on the computer. You just take that piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so um, there's an algorithm for that, yeah. right? <laughs> so I made a trailer, right? Uh, like a a movie trailer for our 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 introduction to the field, like, hey, you know, we're ready for the competition. And I wrote this script. And it's interesting. It's real simple and it just builds in intensity. And I figured, Hey, wouldn't it be awesome to get Morgan Freeman to read this? Yep. Because he's Morgan Freeman, right? I mean, is that quiet understated delivery? That man's voice is worth more than gold, literally. Yeah. And he knows it. Yeah. And so I I contacted his people and, and ended up getting an email back like, yeah, thanks. Um, but no thanks. (laughs) You know, like, not our kind of project. Yeah. Yeah. We're we're not going to. Humanoid robots. No, we're it's like okay. So we I had robot that. penguins on the other hand. Yeah, yeah. Well, totally. <laughs> like really? Um, you, you're. Oh, <laughs> so I think what he was trying to say politely was, "You're not paying me enough for this." Yeah, because <laughs> we're not for Robert. And I hit the knot off, and then maybe we'll talk. I ended up doing the voiceover, but and it sure. wasn't definitely wasn't as effective as Martin Freeman, but it was really interesting. In that was the first time we thought, hey, should we get someone else's voice to do? And I would totally love Jarvis's voice to, you know, whatever the actor's name is, he's brilliant. Because and, you think about the generations that are going to be fascinated and the ones that listen to podcasts like yeah. yours. And we'll make sure at the end we give a good plug for you too on that because okay. it's a great show. That kind of pop culture tie into the actual, hey, here's the science that leads to it. Yeah. And the work and the people that actually, you know, the real life wizards that make stuff happen. Yeah. And the people who will benefit from that work now and in the end. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a great story to have in there, not just focused on your story, but also just how that fits into the larger endeavor. I know a couple of documentaries that are, they do a short and long form. They actually just had some submissions at Tribeca this year, last year. Yeah. So I can put you in touch with some folks there. Yeah. You know, uh, can't promise you anything. The guy I know who ran the New York division actually left to go work on a Terrence and Allen flick. Oh, yeah. See, the thing is, it's I, I, it's one of his idols. Hey, man, yeah. do what you do. I tell Absolutely. people, like I said on the stage, man, you want something, do it. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, so I'm, I'm of the mindset that what's going to happen is that I'm going to have to reach a point at work where I can say, hey, guys, I need to take two months off and I need to lock myself in a hotel room mm-hmm. away from the world. And when I emerge, I will have something awesome for you. But I need you to leave me alone for two months. You need to focus just like they need to cogitate over a thing that they can't solve. Yes, exactly. And and I just haven't had that point. Um, Dark Robotics Challenge ended June 8, 2015. The moment that ended, I flew back to Pensacola and started STEM <laughs> Talk, um, sure. which is, which is our, our podcast. Fast forward 2016, we still hadn't, we hadn't even won the podcast award yet. In fact, we hadn't even been live for six months before the Cybathlon hit. And so 
we worked on Sabathlon. Boom. Um, I guess uh, 2016, that was over. I landed and been working ever since on, on a bunch of different projects, then talk included. So at some point, I just need to hit the brakes and reach a point where I can, I can step back and I would really like to shape. I've been lucky enough to see, to witness one, the largest robotics initiative in the history of humankind. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, it was the front row seat at the DARPA Robotics Challenge, not just here, but with MIT and with all of these other teams and all of these other robotics I mean, that the field of humanoid robotics are talking 600 people in the world and they're doing something never, never attempted before. And I think right. part of the reason they put both of you guys on the stage is that you have our perspective. Yeah. They're watching it, but you have the experience we have of life being here in this moment. Yes. Yeah. And then couple that with the experience of watching the miracle. And every time Mark is up, I, it, I never ceases. It never gets old. The miracle of up and walking again. I mean, now it's to the point where it's normal. Sure. But it's still amazing. And it, you know, it, it, it's like, okay, cool. Mark's up. Mark's in the exhale and we're, we're focusing on other things. How are your legs? How are you this? Sure. And we're, we're focused. But, but then you turn to the audience and their reactions. Yeah. Yeah. How was the that? people, man. Yeah. <laughs> the people. They, they, that, that, like, like I said with the whole thing that, like, none of this is necessarily personally for me, you know, sure. like, to be able to, I always explain it, I guess, just the best way to explain it is I'm where I want to be. I'm, I'm happy. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there, there's not a person or a cloud in the sky that can ruin the light that I have in front of me now. I'm just happy in life. Like, I, that, that's never going to change. But being able to see that what I'm a part of and, and what I've been able to witness affect others in a way past intellectual thought mm-hmm. to where they have really no words to say. They're all, cameras up and eyes forward you know what i mean and and to see that look on their face of just this is absolutely amazing mm-hmm. you know and like billy said that you know the shock part is gone for us but it's still amazing you know and i mean to be able to pass that shock on to others that was pretty fun watching that amazement that light yeah occurring someone else just like in that moment you stepped into the church and went wow how did i get here mm-hmm. last two questions i guess is there anything we've talked about or haven't talked about yesterday you want to touch back upon? And then I've got one question for both of you. Another thing that was really interesting is when we went to Zurich. True. It was kind of the opposite of what we see with the able-bodied individuals. You see the reactions of the crowd here. The majority, 99.999% of them had their, can, could walk full easily, right? So there were, the, I counted, there was someone else in a wheelchair and maybe some other uh, mobility, people with mobility uh, problems, but the vast majority were able-bodied individuals. When we went to the Cybathlon, it was a f- complete flip because there was a high percentage of people that were observers mm-hmm. that were in wheelchairs that were, that were you know, were not able-bodied. They, mm-hmm. they, for, they were born this way, they, you know, injuries of, injuries of, of whatnot. You know, that at some point they, they ended up in a chair, they ended up and to see them observe, it was when they were watching it, they had fire and passion. And if I could go back, I would point the camera. I wouldn't point the cameras at Mark on the field. I would turn around and point the cameras at the people around me, mm-hmm. and which is what I'm going to do this time, yeah. in theory, um, if we can go back. I really want to observe the crowd because it was like a sporting event. They were cheering for their favorite team. Sure. And... They were, they were that exoskeleton. That, that <laughs> one, you know, yeah, yours is better. You yeah. know, they said, and, and they would point it and they, they're like, yeah, and they, they got it. They understood that, like, okay, the, who, what team, that team engineered something that device is capable versus this other one. They were like, no, no, this one, yes, go, go. I want go. that one for me. I want to hop, skip, and yeah, yeah. open the doors myself. Yeah, and they yeah. were excited. And it was a total departure from everything that we've ever changed, you know, and seen. Because every time Mark gets up in front of people that have never seen it before, it's that feeling and that, you know, open mouth. There's just phones out, just staring. It's not a cheering like, woo people, but the people in Zurich, you know, they're paralyzed kids. They were pissed if people walked in front of them. I'm trying to see the race. Yeah, I got yelled at by this kid, man. And I'm like, man, and I'm where I'm supposed to be. He's like, get down, get out of my way. And I'm like, 
And he's above me looking sure. down. Look at your boy Mark trying to about the and he's I wanna watch him. And they I know you're part of the team, but get out of the way. And I'm like, Okay, dude. <laughs> like I yelled at some dude in Europe. And he was he was a fiery kid and they were to to see that kind of of emotion and that that we would equate to like sports fans, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, go to a Packers game and then you know, yell, go Lions. But that's a little of identification. <laughs> yeah. That I see who I can be and want to be in you and what you're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a totally different experience altogether. Just for me, I feel honored to have been even just afforded the opportunity to witness any of this. Mm. Anything. Any, everything else is cherries on top. Like, as far as what, I mean, I've, I've seen things. I've witnessed blind people seeing. I've witnessed paralyzed people walking in front of my own eyes. And I know, I know that I've somehow been granted this once in a, I, not even once in a lifetime. I mean, it's just, I'm one of 7 billion people and I get to see this, what people open up Bibles and they read and they, they read about miracles and I see them. But, I, but then I also see the years of work up to that point where there's a miracle. Right. And, and I, and I get to, and I understand the whole, the, from start to finish. The tests, the experiments, the failures, the trials. Yeah. Before it ever, they ever strap it on to Mark. Right. Like right now, I've been watching them build this robot for a year and a half and whatever. They're still not done. They're freaking out because we're about to, in theory, go to, you know, in 54 days, we're going to be in Zurich <laughs> and competing again. Mm-hmm. And, it's still not completed. There's still big, major issues they're trying to iron out. And then once the robot's done, and then Mark is in it, then they have to iron out the software. Yeah, yeah, calibrate. Calibrate everything, yeah. And so, but I've been observing for a year and a half now on that one project mm-hmm. and, and been there from the beginning, from the design meetings and everything else. So it's, it's, it's a really interesting perspective to have been afforded, you know, the opportunity to just be the fly on the wall for so long. It's, I don't know. That you're that you're now able to to think about how to share that, how to give that yeah. to the world, so that they can have even a portion of the experience you've had. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not fair. I don't. Well, for one thing, I don't think it's fair that I've, I've had this experience and everyone else has. The other thing, right? Yeah. But how do you package it in an hour and a half? You know, I'm, I'm thinking ninety minutes. You know, right? Like, how do you make that into a story that gives the immediacy, the connection to the heart, but also just the the work, the effort, the thought behind it. Yeah. I think definitely you'd have to share the interviews with them where you get the scientists themselves digging into or passionate about, oh, this is the moment, and then tie that back to folks like Mark who are the recipient of all of the work. Yeah. Because we're going to see, if we can hear your joy and experience in that, and we can hear the people creating this and why, really, they do. Because everyone who's researching is not purely just to dig into or solve a problem. There's probably that intellectual query, right? Can we do this? Can we achieve it? But there's something at heart driving them to keep at it. They push you through the failures. I teach creatives. It's the same thing. They tell me I want to write a novel. I say, great. Can you find joy in the work you're doing? Because if you can't, let's do that first. That's what's going to keep you motivated throughout all of this. Mark, is there anything we've touched upon or haven't touched upon yet that you want to bring up now? I I guess it's the the same way I always feel. (laughs) The the, the, the engineers and the guys that I work with deserve a lot of credit. They are are hard-working, intelligent people and when you talk about why they do this and, and why they're devoted so hard to it if you ask them they're going to more than likely say it's because of me you know what i mean and and i love that relationship that we have because i'm helping them and doing everything that i can to help them for somebody else mm-hmm. and they're doing everything that they can do to help me help somebody else that camaraderie that we've had in the time that we've spent together and the conversations that we've had it really opened my mind to the, the question that I brought up on stage, which was, you know, the, you know, why is there not anything better than this? You know, why is there nothing better than a wheelchair after 3,000 years of using it? Mm-hmm. And, and you know, we can, you know, technology, technology, technology wasn't there. You know, we can say that. But really what I think would change a lot of the things that we have lacking in technology mm-hmm. is the relationship like I have with a team that, that gives them an obvious goal of who they're helping and what they're doing. And you put somebody like me in a position working with these engineers day to day and they see me every day mm-hmm. and they realize they're, they're doing their job, but they see me every day and it gives them that motivation and feedback that they need to do it better. And 
if anything, I, I would really want to promote that practice. As simple as seeing that smile on another person's face that you helped, you helped get there. Is there a question? I don't know if this is true or not, but is there a question you've always wanted someone to ask you that they never have? Something you've just wanted to talk about and never really had the opportunity to? I never go out looking for a specific thing to talk about. Right. Like, I didn't plan a speech when we came here or anything like that. True. I literally just listened to the things that were going on and talked to the people around me. And then what I got out there and said was what I thought people needed to hear. You know what I mean? And as far as questions that I wish people would ask me, there's never really been anything that people haven't asked me. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> you know, like that, that's, that is a, that is a really big fact in my life is being in the chair and people being curious. Mm -hmm. Dude, curious people are not ashamed. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show you as a born, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash Diaries. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share, or have us revise, you can write to us at my name dot my last and hear me diaries. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.